your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. We're making our way through Mark. We're in chapter 9. And if, if you're looking ahead and wondering, well, how much more of Mark is there? Only 16 chapters, so we're, you know, we're over halfway through. Good news. How many of you have ever seen the movie Glory? The film Glory. Civil War movie, Denzel Washington, Morgan Freeman, Matthew Broderick, uh, you know, Ferris Bueller. Uh, it, it's a great movie. And uh, it's a movie that is based on true story, uh, tr- actual events, and it's about the 54th Massachusetts Infantry Regiment, the very first African-American regiment in the U.S. Army. And it's a compelling story because these are former slaves who are fighting for their freedom and the freedom of other African-Americans. And they paid the ultimate price for that freedom as they fought the Battle of Fort Wagner and died. And that attack on Fort Wagner was a failed attack. They they weren't able to take it. It was a a loss. And this entire regiment perished. And the movie closes with this final scene of all of their bodies being thrown in a mass grave. The screen goes black, the end. So if you're like me and you watch that movie, and it's 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 a great movie, but you wonder, why is it called glory? How is defeat and death glorious? They lost. Where's the glory? And it makes you wonder that maybe glory could be a quality that's independent of outcome. Now, it all depends on what we mean by glory. The first entry in the dictionary for glory defines it as high renown or honor won by notable achievements. High renown or honor won, it's earned, you gain it, by notable achievements. Now, if that's what we mean by glory, then the movie's title is ironic, at the very least. Because they didn't win. How can death and defeat be a notable achievement? But, if we mean a more biblical definition of glory, then maybe we're on to something. The Hebrew word for glory that we find throughout the Bible is kavod. And it literally means heavy. Weighty. And it came to mean glory based on the idea of you giving weight to something, of you giving importance and significance to something. You honor someone or something, they have weight, they have import. Consider that as a result of these brave men's death in battle, the United States was inspired to create more African American regiments. And that over 180,000 people volunteered to serve in these regiments. President Lincoln even gave these men credit for turning the tide of the war. So in that way, it was glorious. Their sacrifices had weight, significance. What they did was important and honorable. It all depends on what we mean. By glory. Consider these two quotes about glory. Thomas Gray said, The paths of glory lead but to the grave. Whereas Jean de la Fontaine said, There is no road of flowers leading to glory. Now both of these kind of look like they're saying something different, but they're saying the same thing from two opposite ends. If we seek our own worldly glory, if we're just after fame and renown, if we just want to make a name for ourselves, like the people who built the Tower of Babel, they wanted to make a name for themselves, if that's it, then that kind of hubris will lead but to the grave. 
It comes at a high cost. We may gain the world, but we lose our soul. However, if we're seeking to live lives of significance, if we want to do something important, if we want to make a difference and do something weighty, something bigger than ourselves, the path to that kind of glory, well, it isn't a bed of roses. It's not lined with flowers. That kind of glory requires hard work, sacrifice, selfless service, even suffering. Now, the disciples were far too interested with that first definition of glory. Later on in Mark chapter 9, we see them arguing amongst themselves about who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And then in the next chapter, Mark 10, James and John ask Jesus if they can sit at his right and left hand in glory. We see the disciples' inflated sense of self-importance as they try to chase the children away from Jesus. He's, he's too big for you little kids. He's, he's got bigger fish to fry. Or when they object and become incensed because somebody outside their little group dared to heal people and cast out demons in Jesus' name. How dare someone else steal our thunder? So is it any wonder that the disciples then expected Jesus to be this kind of Messiah that would march into Jerusalem and kick out the Romans and set up His throne and give them places of glory and honor to rule at His side? Is it any wonder that they're so confused when instead Jesus said that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected, that He must be killed and after three days rise again? This was so unexpected and and alarming to the disciples that Peter even pulled Jesus aside and rebuked him and said, Jesus, we're never going to let those kinds of things happen to you. Peter wanted to grab hold of glory, but not the cross. He wanted to see Jesus reign in glory, but not suffer shame and rejection. James and John in Mark 10, when they're asking to sit on Jesus' left and right hand, Jesus says, you can't drink the cup I'm going to drink or be baptized with the cup I'm going to be baptized with. They said, oh, yes, we can. Because they thought it was going to be a royal cup. They thought it was going to be a baptism of glory and to power. But Jesus meant the cup of suffering. He meant a baptism of death. And before we get too high and mighty with the disciples and look down on them as a bunch of fools, aren't we all like that? Don't we want the rewards without the risk? The payoff without paying the price? We look for glory, but not through suffering, not through sacrifice. When I was in high school, my dad gave me a quote that I kept on my bedroom wall above my desk, and it's by Theodore Roosevelt. He said, It is only through labor and painful effort, by grim energy and resolute courage, that we move on to better things. That's a good quote. What he's saying is no pain, no gain. Jesus wanted to help the disciples understand His true glory as the Son of God, but but also for them to understand His true mission as the Messiah. Jesus wanted them to understand that His kingdom, though glorious, would come by grim energy and resolute courage. By labor and painful effort, the kingdom would come through sacrifice, service, and suffering.
In last week's sermon, we looked at Peter's confession that Jesus was the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one of God. He was the prophet, the priest, and the king who had come to redeem, to save, and deliver his people, to set God's people free. And though the disciples had come to understand Jesus' title, they still failed to grasp the job description. They didn't understand what it meant for Jesus to be the Messiah. They knew the who of His identity, but not the how of His mission. And that's why Jesus so harshly rebuked Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the things of God. You have in mind the things of men. And after that very harsh rebuke, Six days go by before today's story. Six days. Can you imagine what that, those six days must have been like for Peter? The last thing you heard Jesus say was, Get thee behind me, Satan. You go for six days bearing that. Imagine six days for the rest of the disciples. The last thing they really heard from Jesus was, I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be betrayed and I'm going to be beaten and tortured and crucified and, and, and I'm going to die. Bit of a downer. This didn't match what they had in mind. This was inconceivable to them. So after six days, Jesus knew they needed some encouragement, but He also wanted to continue to open their eyes to better see and understand what was going to have to happen. And that brings us to Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 2. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain, probably Mount Hermon, which is just north of Caesarea Philippi, which is where the events of Mark chapter 8 happened last week. They're at Caesarea Philippi. It's at the foot of Mount Hermon. So he leads them up a high mountain where they're all alone with Jesus. And there he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Luke says he didn't know what he was saying. So he's just kind of talking, right? He's nervous. He's just talking. doesn't know what he's saying. Then a cloud appeared and enveloped them. And a voice came from the cloud, This is my Son whom I love. Listen to Him. Suddenly when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, why did the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come. And they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. The transfiguration is an unparalleled event in all of Scripture. In that brief moment, the glory of the Son of God was fully revealed. Now make no mistake, that glory was always there. That glory was always there within Jesus, but it was hidden, it was veiled by His incarnation. But someday, that same glory will be revealed for all people to see, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, and every knee will bow when He comes again to rule and reign forever. 
The Greek word for transfigured is the word we get metamorphosis from. It means to be changed, to be transformed. This is the process we use to describe how a caterpillar becomes a butterfly. It's metamorphosis. It's transformed. But in Jesus' transfiguration, His nature was not changed. Rather, for a brief moment, that veil was lifted, the veil of His humanity, and His true nature was able to shine through. In his commentary on Mark, Kent Hughes writes, The glory which was always in the depths of his being rose to the surface for that one time in his earthly life. Or put another way, he slipped back into eternity to his pre-human glory. But not only that, this was also a foretaste of the glory that was to come. We heard that in our New Testament reading this morning. In fact, the only other place that Jesus is ever described like this is in the book of Revelation. When He comes again. Even after His resurrection. Now here Jesus is in this resurrected body that will never die, never get sick, never get hurt or age. This body that can disappear like that. It can appear in a locked room. But He looked like Jesus. He wasn't glowing. He wasn't radiant like this. He looked so natural that in the garden, by the empty tomb, Mary thought He was a gardener. The two disciples on the road to Emmaus didn't even recognize Him. Nor did the disciples fishing on the Sea of Galilee as He called to them from the shore. So the transfiguration was a unique moment. It was both a glance backward at Jesus' pre-incarnate glory, but it was also a sneak peek ahead to His future eternal glory. But why? What's the point? of the transfiguration. Why were Peter, James, and John there to witness this? Well, look back at verses 2 and verse 4 and notice that it said that this all happened before them. Jesus was transfigured before them. Moses and Elijah appeared before them. In verse 7, the cloud enveloped them. And from the cloud, the Father spoke to them. Who was the them? Peter, James, and John. This was done for their benefit. It was for them. The purpose was both to confirm Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, but also to reinforce what Jesus was trying to tell them about the nature of His mission and what was going to happen in Jerusalem. So let's look at those two purposes for the transfiguration. First, the transfiguration confirmed Peter's confession about the identity of Jesus. It was a confirmation of Jesus' identity. Now naturally, such a powerful display of, of His glory, His splendor, His majesty, His radiance, would affirm that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. The transfiguration, in fact, revealed at least three things, three essential elements of Jesus' nature that, that lined up with Peter's confession. First, The glory of His sinlessness. We see the glory of Jesus' sinlessness. The description of His appearance signifies this essential element of His character. Mark describes His appearance as dazzling white. He says it's whiter than anyone could ever bleach a garment. You know, so all those, you know, laundry soap commercials about, oh, ours makes it even whiter. I mean, Jesus was whiter than any of them. It was pure brilliance. Matthew says, His face shone like the sun. And his clothes became as white as the light. Luke writes that Jesus' clothes became as bright as a flash 
of lightning. And although John doesn't actually mention the transfiguration, in the opening chapter of his gospel, he also describes Jesus as a light shining in the darkness, as having the light of life and as being the true light that gives light to every man. And then later in John's gospel, Jesus declares of himself, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So what is the meaning of all these symbols about shining and and bright and light and lightning and all of that? What does that mean? It's a symbol of Jesus' purity, His holiness, His trustworthiness, His sinlessness. As John would later write in 1 John 1, 5, God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. No black, no shadow. He is pure, radiant light. God's absolute purity, His holiness and righteousness, His trustworthiness, all of these qualities point to His glory. God will always make good on His promises. If God promises something in the Bible, you can take that to the bank. He will make good on His promise. God does not change like a shifting shadow. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. What God says in the Bible is good and right is still good and right today. What God says in the Bible is wicked and sinful is still wicked and sinful today. He does not change. And because Jesus is the sinless Son of God, the light of the world in whom there is no darkness, He was the perfect substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us, that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. We see on the Mount of Transfiguration the glory of Jesus' sinlessness, His holiness, His purity. Secondly, we see the glory of His sonship. You know, Mark's Gospel was written to help us see and understand that Jesus is the Messiah, but that He also is the Son of God. Uh, Back in Mark 1.1, Mark said, I'm writing this to tell you that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. But this was unexpected to the Jews of Jesus' day. Their idea of the Messiah certainly didn't have any conception of the Trinity, much less the existence of God the Son. This was outside of their thinking. But here on this mountain, we see God the Father manifesting His glory like a cloud, echoing back to that Shekinah glory of God, that cloud that descended on Mount Sinai as God entered into a covenant relationship with the people of Israel. He gave the Ten Commandments and the law to Moses. This same cloud of glory was there. Or it reminds us of the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night that guided and protected the children of Israel through the desert. Or it reminds us of that cloud of glory that descended upon the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies of the tabernacle and later the temple. And in that cloud we hear the voice of God the Father echo the same thing He said about Jesus at His baptism. This is My Son whom I love and whom I'm well pleased. And remember that at Jesus' baptism not only do we see God the Son Not only do we hear God the Father, but we see God the Spirit descending on Jesus like a dove. It is Jesus' identity as that second person of the Trinity, the Son of God that is the focus of the second half of Mark's Gospel, beginning with this moment right here. So is it any wonder that Peter, James, and John were frightened by all this? Wouldn't you be? I mean, if you look back at verse 1, 
of Mark 9, which really goes with with Mark chapter 8, Jesus told them, He said, Some of you will not see death until you see the kingdom of God come in power and glory. Well, this certainly seemed like that, didn't it? This seemed like the kingdom of God coming in power and glory. And so I think Peter, James, and John were like, Is this it then? Are we dead now? I mean, if you think about it, when Moses asked God to reveal His glory to him, what did God say? Moses, it would kill you. I'll stick you in this crack in the rock here and I'll put my hand over it and I'll pass by and you can see where my glory was. But if you looked right at my glory, you would die. Well, Peter, James, and John are getting full exposure to God's glory. There is no hiding in a rock or behind a hand. It is full-on, radiant glory. And Peter didn't know what to say or do except they needed to build shelters or tabernacles. Now, maybe he had the Feast of Tabernacles in mind and wanted to honor uh, Jesus and, 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 and Moses and Elijah. But some interpreters interpret what Peter says instead of as, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Some say that he's really asking a question. Rabbi, is it good for us to be here? Peter's saying, uh, Jesus, maybe should we go? <laughs> and so what does he do? He wants to build tabernacles to hide away this glory. Remember the people of Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai. They wanted to hide from that glorious cloud. When Moses came down and his face was radiant, they made him put a veil over his face. And so they're thinking, uh, let's build some tabernacles to put that Holy of Holies glory where it belongs, behind a curtain, because they were frightened. Either way, Peter was wrong. On two accounts, first, the glory of God already had an earthly tabernacle. Jesus, His flesh and blood was that tabernacle. What they were experiencing was a peak behind the curtain. But more importantly, Peter was wrong because he equated Jesus with Elijah and Moses. He put them on the same level. It's like Peter had gone back to thinking like the crowd, that Jesus was like John the Baptist or Elijah or one of the prophets. He's put Jesus on the same level as Moses and Elijah. So God corrected Peter and said, no, this Jesus, this is my beloved son. You listen to him. And in that moment, the cloud, the radiance, Moses and Elijah were gone. And they saw Jesus standing alone. And what a message that is for us. That through all of our theology and all of our debates over doctrine, through all of our Bible studies, through all of our work and all of our worship, it's got to leave us standing alone with Jesus or it's worth nothing. He is the one to whom we should listen. The law and the prophets were partial expressions, revealing bits and pieces of God's character. But in Jesus, we have the final, full, complete revelation of God. As the author of Hebrews says in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times in various ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed as heir of all things and through whom He also made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. And John says that Jesus is the Word. He is the Word of God made flesh. All of Scripture points to Him and must be interpreted by Him because it's all about, for, by, and to Jesus. As Peter would later say, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. We have to listen to Jesus. For as God spoke through Moses, predicting 
the coming of Christ. He said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. And what did he say? You must listen to him. We must listen to no other voice but the Lord's. But Jesus is more than just a great teacher we should listen to. He's more than just a great example that we should follow. He is greater than Moses and Elijah, who, yes, were servants and prophets of God. But Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17, Do not think I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus was the fulfillment toward which everything in the law and the prophets pointed. He was the fulfillment of the sacrificial system. He was the fulfillment of every messianic prophecy. Everything toward which the Jewish religion and history had been moving was Jesus. And the appearance of Moses and Elijah representing the law and the prophets confirmed that. Confirmed for Peter, James, and John that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now these things are obviously reflections of God's glory, aren't they? The the bright radiant light, the Shekinah glory of the cloud, the voice of God the Father, the appearance of Moses and Elijah... We see that and we think, oh, that's definitely glorious. Yes, that points to the sinlessness and the sonship of Jesus, but the transfiguration revealed one more thing about Jesus. The glory of His suffering. And this was something the disciples had a little bit of a harder time wrapping their minds around. And it's really the second purpose behind the transfiguration. Yes, the transfiguration confirmed Peter's confession about the identity of Jesus, But the transfiguration also clarified Peter's confession. It clarified the mission of Jesus. And that was the most important thing, I think. Remember the quote, The road to glory leads but to the grave. That road isn't lined with flowers. Jesus wanted them to know His glory. Jesus wanted them to share in His glory, but He wanted them to know that the way to Jesus' glory is always through the cross. It's always through the cross. That's what Jesus was explaining at the end of Mark 8 that we looked at last week. We can't partake of His glory unless we're willing to deny ourselves, pick up our cross, and follow Him. Whereas Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8, he says, now if we are children, meaning children of God, if we're children of God, then we are heirs. We are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. And then he gets specific. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Notice what comes first. If you want to share in his glory, what do you have to share in? His sufferings. Peter himself said this in 1 Peter chapter 4. He said that rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. The suffering comes before the glory. We can't enjoy the Father's glory unless we're willing to boldly stand up for Jesus in this sinful and adulterous generation. If we try to avoid the cross while grabbing for our own glory, we forfeit our soul. We will lose our lives. And Jesus will be ashamed of us when He comes in glory. To confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, is to both confess that He is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 that we heard this morning, and He's that victorious King that comes in the book of Revelation. 
He's both. He's both. We have to embrace the suffering of the cross. The suffering which we all will face more and more the more like Jesus we become. We have to be willing to endure persecution for Him as we live out His commands in this sinful world. And the more we live out His commands and Jesus' ethics, the more like Him we become, the more this world will hate us. Jesus even said in the Beatitudes that we will be blessed when we suffer for the sake of His name. If we're to follow Him, we have to deny ourselves and take up our cross. Notice that before this moment of transfiguration that we looked at last week, Mark chapter 8, notice that Jesus spoke at length about His suffering and death, right? So immediately before this, Jesus is speaking at length for the first time about all He's going to suffer and be rejected and He's going to die. On the way down the mountain, Jesus is talking about how the Son of Man will suffer and be rejected. He talked about how John the Baptist, as the fulfillment of the prophecy of Elijah, John the Baptist suffered and died. Herod and and, and his cronies did all the things to him that they wished to do, including cutting off his head. And then Jesus talked about how he must be risen from the dead. Peter, James, and John still didn't understand any of this. They didn't understand it before. They didn't understand it coming down the mountain. They didn't understand that Jesus' transfiguration not only revealed His glory as the Son of God, but also as the Son of Man. Before the glory of the resurrection and the return of Christ, there has to be suffering and death. And this is why Jesus commanded them to keep all of this a secret till after the resurrection, because outside the context of the cross and empty tomb, the transfiguration makes no sense. We have to see this event through the suffering and death of Jesus. So before the mount, Jesus talked about his suffering and death. On the way down the mount, Jesus talked about his suffering and death. What about on the mount? As Ben was saying, those mountaintop experiences are great. Certainly on the mount, it was all just, you know, ponies and rainbows and happiness, right? No. What did Moses, Peter, and Elijah talk about when they were there? I mean, Peter and, uh, I mean Moses and Elijah, they didn't just show up to give autographs or to pose for you know, pictures or anything like that. Why were they there? Well, Mark doesn't tell us because you know, Mark focuses on what's done, not what's said. But Luke tells us. Luke chapter 9 says, Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about His departure, which He was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Now what does that mean? His departure. It seems so cryptic. You know what the Greek word for departure is? Exodus. Exodus. That's amazing. Jesus was talking to Moses about His exodus. He was talking to Moses about how He was coming to redeem God's people and set them free from slavery to sin. He was going to lead them through the waters of death. He was going to part those waters and lead them on to an eternal, glorious, promised land. Amen? That's amazing to me. Moses and Jesus were talking about His exodus. What Jesus came to do for us. Just as God through Moses redeemed the people of Israel at Mount Sinai to be His people, so through Jesus on Mount Calvary, God has redeemed us to be His people. A new covenant community called the church. 
That's why Jesus said in Mark 8, 34, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. In other words, if we're to experience and share in the glory of the Son of God, we've got to follow the path of the Son of Man. A path that leads through the cross. If we want to be a part of His kingdom, we've got to walk the road of suffering. If we're going to experience our own metamorphosis. Now it's interesting that other than the three gospel accounts of Jesus' transfiguration, there's only two other places in all the New Testament that Greek word metamorphosis is used. Only two. And they're both used by the Apostle Paul. That's pretty significant. So you've got Jesus' transfiguration, and then you've got these two other transfigurations that are talked about. Let's look at that. Romans chapter 12. Paul says to us, believers, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. There's the word. Metamorphosis. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Don't conform to this world anymore. Don't think like men anymore. Rather be renewed in your mind to think like God and be transfigured. And then in 2 Corinthians 3.18. And all this is a promise. That was a command. This is a promise. And we all who with unveiled faces... Again, thinking about Moses, how Moses wore this veil. He says, all we who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory... Fully exposed, just like Peter, James, and John were. We are fully exposed, contemplating the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. Metamorphosis. We're being transfigured into what? Into His image. With ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So Jesus' transfiguration revealed The essence of His true nature, His glory, His splendor, His goodness, His power. What does our transfiguration reveal about us? As we are experiencing metamorphosis, what do we reveal? An ever-increasing conformity to Jesus' image. We become more and more like Him. Paul says that His glory will become our glory. See, this is the great secret of discipleship. If we want to save our lives, we must lose our lives. The first will be last, and the last will be first. We shouldn't seek to be served, but to serve. If we want glory, we have to deny ourselves. Take up our crosses and follow after Jesus as He walks that road to glory by way of Calvary. So here's the application. Here's here's what this means to us today. And then I'm going to give the invitation. Are we chasing after personal glory? Are you chasing after fame, fortune, power, possessions? Are we striving to make a great name for ourselves? Because that path leads but to disillusionment and discouragement and death. That path of glory leads but to the grave. We may gain the world, but we forfeit our souls. See, the only true glory that you and I can ever know and experience, the only real, lasting glory that we can take part in, is His glory. Because guess what? He's the only glorious one. He's the only one worthy of worship and praise. 
And the goal of Christian discipleship, the goal of our sanctification is to stop being conformed to this world and to be transformed by the renewing of our mind so that we can be transformed into the image of Christ with ever-increasing exposure to and reflection of His glory. He is the sun, we're but the moon. We reflect His glory. So here's the invitation to you this morning. Will you deny yourself? Will you leave behind your sin? And your striving, your, your work to try to be a good person, to try to do better, will you leave that behind and be born again this morning? Become a new creation in Christ Jesus. There comes a point in every person's life where you've got to make a decision. You come to realize that you're a sinner. You've been trying to make a name for yourself. You've been trying to strive for your own glory. You've been trying to do it your way. You've been trying to be a good person, but you realize that you never will. There's only one solution. There's only one hope, and that's Jesus. He became sin who knew no sin, that you and I might become righteous. Will you come today? Turn from your sins. Leave them behind. Deny yourself. Take up the cross. Put your trust in Jesus and what He did for you and be saved. That's what it means to be saved. That's what it means to be a Christian, to be born again. It's to turn from your sin and your striving and just trust in Jesus. And if you've never done that, in just a moment I pray you would come today and do that. For those of us that have done that, who are believers, we're followers of Jesus Christ. We know He lives within us and and our security in heaven is sure. We know that. But we get distracted. Kind of like Peter, we start slipping back into thinking the thoughts of men and not the thoughts of God. Maybe this morning you need to come to this altar or come and take my hand and let me pray with you. Maybe today you need to recommit yourself to taking up that cross and following Jesus. This morning, maybe you need to say, you know what, yes, I've been ashamed of Jesus. I've not been standing up in a sinful and adulterous generation boldly for Him. And I don't want Jesus to be ashamed of me. I want to recommit myself to speaking His truth, to living out His love, to shining His glory, not mine. Maybe you need to come and recommit yourself today. Maybe God's been speaking to you and asking you to unite with this church family to say this is the place where I want to worship and grow and learn and serve. I want to be a part of this church family. Or maybe God is calling you to a specific area of service in this church or out there in the world. And you've been running, you've been making excuses, but today you want to surrender to what God is calling you to do. Listen, whatever Jesus is saying to you today, whatever He's laying on your heart or calling you today, Listen to Him. Listen to Him. And obey. Would you stand and pray with me? Father, forgive us for making it about us. It's not about us. It has always been and always will be about You. Everything was created by You and for You and through You and to You and You're the one who holds all things together. We don't. We like to think we do. We like to fool ourselves into thinking that we're in control, which we're not. And when we try to sit in the pilot seat, we just usually fly things into the ground. Forgive us, Lord, and help us to surrender the keys to you, to let you sit in your rightful place as Lord 
as Master, as Savior of our lives. And if there's anyone here today who's never done that, they've never confessed their sin and put their trust in you, Jesus, I pray they would come right now. That they could know that they know, going out these doors today, that they belong to you. That they are forgiven and made clean and have a fresh start in Jesus. The rest of us, Father, I pray you would work in our hearts because we've not arrived yet. We've not figured it all out. We're not perfect. We're far from it. We're only here by your grace. God, forgive us when we think like the world. Forgive us when we mistake what glory is and we think it's something we can generate in and of ourselves. God, forgive us and help us to recommit ourselves to simply reflecting your glory to this world. Whatever you are speaking to our hearts today, may we listen. May we be obedient. In Jesus' name.